Well, all right. We are starting uh, together as a new church, week two here, and um, honestly, starting, starting something fresh, starting something new is good reason to sort of reevaluate sort of why we do what we do. So a lot of you here, uh, not everyone actually, um, but a lot of you here have been part of, of Door of Hope Southeast for some amount of time. And uh, I, I suspect the, the worship gatherings here are going to feel super similar. Um, but nonetheless, like it, it, even preparing for these, these first Sundays, it's, it's been an interesting process to sort of rethink through like, Oh, well, why do we do things the way we do? Why would we structure a service this way? Why would we start with this song, go to announce, do this, do that? Well, should we have the greeting time? Like, even down to like, why, why do we do things like preach through whole books of the Bible verse by verse, essentially? Um, there's no plan to stop doing that for reasons we're going to describe, but, but it's, if, if we don't at least ask the question and revisit with some intentionality, uh, we'll just find ourselves sliding and stumbling into things sort of out of rote habit or whatever. Um, starting something new actually makes it natural and not weird to sort of re-look at these things and, and remind ourselves and even reteach ourselves the reasoning behind why we do what we do when we, when we gather here for worship. And so we're about to start uh, a few months through the book of 1 John. Um, and so you can gear up for that. Uh, we'll be starting today. But before we jump into that book itself, I, I think it's, it's worth taking a minute to, to revisit this more fundamental question, which is, why do we take the time to preach, A, and, and for many of you to, to listen uh, through sermons like this? Like, we're going to take 13 weeks or something to do First John. Like, why? <laughs> why would we do that? Maybe there'd be more interesting things we could spend our time discussing here. Um, so I just want to give like four four reasons why. If if, you, if the question's never occurred to you, if you've been thinking, oh, I guess that's kind of what we do at church. <laughs> that's what that's what pastors do. They talk for a long time about a few verses from the scripture. Um, I want to just give you four reasons. Number one, um, Jesus held an incredibly high view of of the scriptures, and so. Uh, we don't have time to go kind of verse by verse through that, but, but Jesus himself, the, the Lord we, most of us in this room, I, I'd imagine, claim to follow, um, he was convinced uh, that Scripture was, was the Word of God. He spoke about it in those terms. He, he believed in its authority. He submitted himself to it. Um, he believed it was Spirit-inspired, God-breathed. He believed it was, in his words, unbreakable. And he believed in its coherence that despite different genres and written over a long span of time, certainly when you put the Old Testament and the New Testament together, uh, he believed it was coherent, that, that it fit together, that it wasn't just rife with, with, with flat contradictions that were impossible to make sense of, but he saw it as coherent. When Jesus was in a theological dispute either with Satan himself in the wilderness or with the Pharisees who wanted to try to trap him, he quoted from Scripture and even in Luke 24, he taught that all the scriptures, like their chief point, was wrapped up in him and his mission. So uh, whether, you, whether you came to Jesus first through the scriptures, and as, as you wrestled with the Bible, you came to see who Jesus was, and, and you landed at discipleship to him, or, or if you started with Jesus, you heard about him, you heard of what he had done, you were convinced by that, and then you turned to the Bible that revealed him, whichever path you took, um, 
this is Jesus's, this is Jesus's view. And so we're, if we're going to be faithful disciples of Jesus, we need, to, we need to have the view of the scriptures that he held. But a second reason is, is super interesting. A verse that's just super impactful for me uh, from Isaiah 55. I'm just going to read it, verses 10 and 11. Isaiah says this. He says, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty. It shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. And this, this verse makes explicit what's implicit a lot of the times when the, the scripture talks about itself is that there's, there's real promises attached to the, the power of the word of God as it goes out. Uh, promises that aren't for anybody else's words, and I assure you, promises that are not attached to my words. My words do not have that power, but what, what Isaiah says is that in the same way that rain just brings forth life, when his word goes out, it accomplishes the thing that he sets for it to do. We can have a prompt, there's a promise that we can lean into that that is the case. Um, and that promise isn't for the latest pop psychology or or self-help book. Um, It isn't for a New York Times op-ed or anything else. It isn't for a blog post I might write or something like that. Uh, It's just for God's words. Number three, this is connected, but um, it's how we make sure we are studying what the Apostle Paul called the whole counsel of God. And so letting the books of the Bible set the agenda over time is really the only reliable way to make sure that we don't develop serious blind spots as a community. Uh, If it were left to me to just kind of pick, even from the Bible, like all the things I might want to preach, that would would imply that we're going to leave out a lot of things I don't want to preach about or that that I might find boring or that I might find uncomfortable or I might find embarrassing. By, by working through books of the Bible systematically, verse by verse, we don't get to hide from the parts of Scripture that leave us uncomfortable. Uh, if it were left to me, um, my hunch is that we just spend a whole lot of time just talking about movies up here. <laughs> um, and might be, maybe we should just do that. It sounds kind of fun. Uh, but no, it would <laughs> be a waste of all of our time. Um, and I, but I do want to say we will, of course, at times do strategic kind of topical series and things like that. But our main diet as a community will be verse by verse, book by book through the Bible, Old and New Testament. Um, and then finally, I would just say a, a fourth reason. There's lots of other reasons we might include, but, but one I, I wanted to mention is that by going book by book, we, treating a whole book, we get the context that would otherwise be missing. It helps us make sure we're understanding it properly. I mean, how many times have you just seen a verse yanked out of context and twisted into something that's the exact opposite of when you actually read the thing in its context? This protects us from doing that. Um, and it also helps us appreciate the incredible, like, literary power and design and beauty baked into each biblical book. And there's been a lot of scholarship in the last 50 years really pointing out, like, whoa, these are not just... Sometimes we can take this really sort of proud... Uh, position relative to the writers of Scripture, like, oh, they were ancient. Like, they're writing 2,000 years ago. What did they know about anything? They don't know how to write. They don't know how to create beauty. They don't know how to do artistic 
literary design. And the more you look at this stuff, and a resource like the Bible Project is great for helping you see these things. Like, it is beautiful. It is, it, it is meticulously designed. And how could, it, how could it not be if it is, in fact, inspired uh, by God himself? Um, so we want to we set ourselves at the foot of, of, of that and be able to see those things. So if you're ever wondering, why do we do this? Those are some reasons why. There might be some others. Um, but we'll, we'll pause there. Um, so the next question is, why First John? Why First John? Uh, we could have picked almost anything. Um, why this particular book? Well, I would say First uh, John is one of the most profound books in the New Testament d- discussing the challenge and beauty of living life together in the Christian community. Um, the book is about reclaiming faithfulness to Jesus uh, amidst division. It's about the necessity of, of loving your neighbor if you want to at all be able to speak of fellowship with Jesus. And so in other words, for a group like us, this, this room is full of uh, some of you who are like super good friends already, like close friends. You've known each other for years, and you're, you're here together, and praise God for that. That's awesome. Uh, some of you are total strangers, and you don't know there's a person you look at, you're like, never seen that person before in my life. Um, some of you just gel intimately, and you just get along. It's just like, oh man, when you get together, it just clicks. Some of you know each other and annoy each other, and you know that you annoy each other. <laughs> uh, sorry about that. It's just <laughs> you know, kind of the way, the way community works. Um, and that's all okay. That, 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 that's the nature of any community. But, but, but what's awesome is that starting a new church, we're all sort of in, in certain ways at ground zero, and we're trying to build a life together uh, after the vision that Jesus has laid out for us. And so starting out this way, um, if we're going to be a healthy Jesus-honoring community, there almost isn't any other book more relevant to that purpose and for setting us like true north as a community. Um, so that's why. Uh, now let's just set up briefly First John, and then we'll get into it. We'll, we'll, we'll get into it. Um, so First John is a letter. Um, unlike, so, like, say, Romans or Philippians or something like that, it wasn't written to a particular church. So you'll see, we're going to read the first four verses. There's no address. John just jumps right into it, um, which means it was likely intended to be passed around to multiple communities, as all the New Testament letters eventually were. Uh, but unlike Romans that was written to the church in Rome, this was meant to be an encyclical letter that would get passed around and, and, and really relevant for anyone who was, who was experiencing the kinds of things that this community uh, that John probably had in mind was experiencing. Um, when you read and reread through 1 John, you begin to pick up, it doesn't necessarily lay it out explicitly, but you, you see it by implication uh, that there was some significant division in these churches. Um, there was evidently a group of folks who had left the historic understanding of who Jesus was and what his death had accomplished, and were now claiming some kind of secret insider, secret knowledge status, uh, where they, they claimed to be the ones who had the real fellowship with God. They really knew the, the real truth, um, and, the, and the people who were sort of, of of John's theological persuasion had sort of missed the boat. And so these people were leaving the church communities that John was aware of, and that's one of the things that motivated John to write. Um, the authorship of the letter is technically anonymous. So nowhere in 1 John does, does he say, I, John, you know, apostle, so-and-so, 
uh, write this to you. It's, it's left anonymous. So, uh, and, and yet, historically, the majority view has been because of the similarity of language to the Gospel of John, um, that it was, it's the same writer. It's the beloved disciple who wrote the Gospel of John, who wrote 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. Uh, we won't assert that dogmatically. Could be wrong about that. Could be someone who just studied under John really intimately and, and, and let that theology get baked into his mind and heart and soul. Um, but most scholars would contend John, the beloved disciple, the author of the gospel, and, and maybe even the author of Revelation as well, wrote this. Um, and then one last thing, the, the dating is super interesting of this book. And, and this, I don't know, I was telling Susanna last night, this just kind of struck me. I don't know why this hit me fresh this way, but, but 1 John was written probably the early 90s A.D., and so if you know anything about the, the kind of the chronology of the events of the New Testament, um, Jesus, Jesus was, uh, was killed and, and raised and ascended uh, in the early 30s A.D. Um, the book of Acts picks up right then and, and covers about 30 years to about A.D. 60-ish. Um, and now we're talking about A.D. 90. And so what you can see here is we've got a six, six decades Six decades of theological reflection that John has been able to do from the time that he was actually with Jesus as one of his innermost 12. Six decades to see, in the absence of Jesus, ascended to the Father, the Scripture proclaims, of Jesus building his church, seeing all the struggles, seeing the persecution, seeing the mistakes, seeing the errors, seeing the joys, seeing the highs, seeing the lows. And thinking back on the teachings of Jesus as he saw the miracles and he heard probably the Jesus' teachings multiple, multiple times, and as he, as he saw people trying to work this out over decades, we get this old John now, late in his life, probably towards the end of his life, reflecting and trying to shepherd these churches with now a lifetime of deep reflection back on who Jesus was and what it means for a community. Isn't that profound? So don't, don't just let 1 John become, oh, yeah, it's the Bible, and I'm Christian, so I think I'm technically supposed to be interested in this. Like, this is, in, this is amazing. We've got one of Jesus' inner 12 with a, li- like a lifetime removed from actually walking with Jesus, now writing these things uh, as, as an old sage, if you will. So it's worthwhile for us. Okay, that's it for background. We're just going to jump in. Uh, we've got four verses today, but before we do, uh, let's, let's just pray one more time. Um, Father, we love you, and we thank you for the privilege it is to gather together. We thank you for giving us your word, Lord, that's just, just like, like the incarnated Son of God. It's, it's this mix of divinity and humanity, Lord human authorship, divine authorship, somehow working together uh, that, that, that Jesus seemed to think was authoritative and good and, and, and a source of, of actual divine truth. Um, and so, Lord, in that spirit, we, we come to your word. We ask you to reveal to us what, it, what we're supposed to take from 1 John 1 through 4 this morning, Lord, that we, that we this morning would, would understand it rightly and become accountable to it, Lord, and then live differently in light of it. We know we need your spirit to do that. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to read the first two verses here. 
says, that which was from the beginning. Okay, so John's just jumping in. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we've seen with our eyes, which we've looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. And we'll pause there. So John begins the letter with, with a reminder of, of the incarnation and the crazy reality uh, that Christians have proclaimed as truth for the last 2,000 years, which is that that which or he which was from the beginning, so he's connecting us back to Genesis 1, 1, 1 in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He's connecting us back to John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He's using that very loaded phrase, that which was from the beginning has come in human flesh. And he is, he's correctly identified that the Jesus they saw in the flesh was this beginningless God, somehow. Uh, and Jesus, <laughs> Jesus is also called the word of life in this passage and the eternal life, both language from John's gospel as well. Uh, the one through whom all life came talked about that last week. Jesus is the the agent of creation, the source of all life, and and the one through whom eternal life is given. John identifies him here. And so John comes out of the gate just swinging for the fences theologically, and he's, he he doesn't have his training wheels on. He's he's started, it's even kind of a convoluted sentence here, but he's he's trying to get to the reality here that that the, the Jesus that he and the other disciples lived with and followed this unassuming son of a carpenter, they came to believe he was the one from the beginning. From the beginning. Um, and just note the repetition of sensory language here. So, so John says, we have heard, and not only we've heard, but we have seen with our eyes. And we looked upon and we have even touched with our very hands. And we've seen it and we proclaim it. So I just, I just want to take a second to consider what would it have taken for John and the rest of the disciples to come to believe that this were the case? Like, I don't know if you thought about this before, but usually when there's like a religious guru of some kind, uh, the, the mystique is maintained by keeping sort of a mysterious distance between the guru and the follower. You know what I mean? A, a story that puts this, uh, it came, came to mind last night, that puts this into perspective for me, is you know the story of the Beatles going to hang out with the Maharishi in India? Anybody know this story? Sam knows the story. Uh, so George Harrison was getting really into transcendental meditation and, uh, and Eastern religion in general, um, and he, he convinced the Beatles like, to put down drugs, which was kind of fueling their creative uh, expansion and expression, and, and to come try Eastern religion and transcendental meditation specifically. And so the, the, the band agreed to it. And so the Beatles, and I believe a few of their friends, uh, and they, they went, and they went to study with this, this uh, Hindu guru, the Maharishi. And 
Um, interestingly, uh, the, the, the trip did not go as planned. Um, the Beatles ended up kind of leaving in a flurry uh, as they began, began to realize, see for themselves and hear stories that the Maharishi was actually sort of sexually preying on the young women students that were there. And so it, this man that they had they'd heard so much about and were so entranced by and, and fixated on and, and thought they'd go to for the spiritual uh, sort of enlightenment, a new creative burst of energy or whatever, uh, turned out to be a creep. Like a lot of men. He was a creep. And it was, it was, it was you know, from a distance you might say, wow, what a, what a great, you know, spiritual, uh, spiritual person. But to get up close in proximity often reveals the reality, doesn't it? Um, and so, that's often the way these things go. There's some religious guru that keep you at a mysterious distance and your, your interest is maintained. But the second you actually can get beyond the veil, you sort of are disappointed. <laughs> oh, they're just like me. They've got the same problems I do. They're just in need of the grace of God <laughs> as I am. Um, and of course, uh, Christian leaders, we should just say, are no less susceptible to this very thing. Um, so whether, if you're a Christian leader, whether it's like just a, a small group or, or vocational ministry of some kind or whatever, um, that's why the scriptures repeatedly call us to examine ourselves, to keep watch over ourselves, to keep short accounts with God and neighbor, to confess our sin, um, and to throw ourselves daily on the grace of Jesus. And, and, and pray that we might not fall into the same things. Because we can. And we're going to see another news headline sometime in the next six months of someone doing that very thing who, who, who represents Jesus. And it's tragic. But for, for Jesus, the exact opposite thing happened. The exact opposite thing happened, John says. They were able to see him. They were able to touch him. They were able to smell him. They were able to live life with him. They heard his teaching repeatedly. If anyone were to have a front row seat to inconsistency or contradiction or hypocrisy in Jesus, it would have been someone like John. It would have been someone like John. But for the disciples, the more time spent with Jesus, the more the disciples were able to say, I think you're the son of God. Words they would utter towards the end of Jesus' ministry. And so now think about this. So 60 years have passed from the time of this book was written since Jesus, the scripture's claim, was taken up to the throne of God. And so 60 years on, doubts surely would have begun to arise within these communities, maybe even for John himself. And if for them, no less for us now, some 2,000 years later, right? I mean, the claims are crazy. God walked amongst people in human flesh. He performed miracles. He raised the dead. He healed the blind. He taught this way. He was publicly crucified by Rome. He was raised from the dead. He appeared. He was seen walking and talking and eating. And then he ascended to heaven. Those are crazy claims. Don't let those become <laughs> kind of basic claims. If you believe that, you believe some weird stuff. Embrace it. It's not normal. 
So John is doing some light apologetics here. In, in light of that, like when time passes, the, the, these claims become more and more like, wow, does that, did that really happen? Can we really believe that that's the case? And John is just reasserting that he was an eyewitness to the life and ministry of Jesus that confirmed this Jesus to be God in the flesh. And it just reminds me of that Paul uh, in Acts 26 on trial before Agrippa, he, he has this phrase that stuck with me. He says he's defending his, his preaching of Jesus in the resurrection. And he says, Agrippa, this was not done in a corner, the things I talk about. And what he means is, and this is a pretty unique claim in the world religion, like in the span of world religions, this was not some, some religious guru retreating into a cave and claiming to be influenced by God and coming out and saying, hey, I've got some revelation, why don't you follow me? Which is typically the case. It's, it's an individual sort of who's, who's gotten some kind of dramatic uh, insight. No, the, the life and ministry of Jesus and the apostles was done on the public stage, He was crucified outside the city, hoisted up for people to see. He appeared to eyewitnesses, some of their names recorded in the Gospels. You know why they were recorded in the Gospels, those names? You're like, who the heck is this person? Why is Matthew mentioning them? It's so that the readers could go to that town and ask them. He's leaving footnotes. So-and-so saw him. Go ask him. This was all done publicly, and if it didn't happen, this would have been the easiest stinking thing to refute. Jesus raised from the dead. Oh, really? Oh, he appeared to hundreds of people over a period of 40 days? Okay. But they left their footnotes. So, um, Christianity was birthed through Jesus and the apostles in public, and it was sustained through eyewitness accounts. And many of those accounts are preserved for us here in the New Testament. So, um, once again, don't let this letter become boring to you. The ones who walked with Jesus and who had decades to reflect on him, John Namely, is now writing after this reflection, inspired and empowered by the Holy Spirit to put these things in writing for us. And they've been preserved for us 2,000 years later. It's pretty awesome. So, sum up these first two verses. John seems adamant that his readers recognize that Jesus was not some mere man, but he was the eternal one, the keeper of life, manifested among them so plainly that they could see and touch with their own eyes and hands. It's powerful. So now he's going to move... Uh, into the next step. And it's actually, the, again, the, the grammar here is, is really kind of weird for these four verses. The main verb of all this happens in verse 3. So here it comes. Verse 3. He says, That which we have seen and heard. So once again, he's recapping all that. Here's the main verb. We proclaim. We proclaim it also to you. And so for John... This incredible time traveling with Jesus, seeing the miracles, hearing the teachings over and over, being the, if this is John, being the very disciple leaned against Jesus' chest at the Last Supper, the night Jesus was betrayed. Seeing him crucified, seeing him resurrected, seeing him ascend to heaven 60 years prior, seeing Jesus build his church through the work of the Spirit over those decades, it didn't leave John content inside himself with his own, his own amazing religious experience. 
but it pushed him to share, to invite, to proclaim, he says. It wasn't just, the experience wasn't supposed to end with him. It was supposed to end with him proclaiming it to others who needed to hear this amazing news. And this is the natural course of events when you hear something amazing. I think all of us intuitively do this. You hear something amazing, you want to go and share. Even if it's not amazing, even if it's just something pretty cool, you'll want to share it. Even if it's something pretty dumb, <laughs> you'll want to share it. I feel like one of the only rules in our household is if you find a good meme or animal video, you have to text it to the other. Like, we, we get on that. Solid meme, it's going to get passed along. So that's the natural course of things. Um, and even, even more than that, not that I personally know anything about this, but there are some of us in this room who even end up like scouring the internet for set photos of the latest Batman movie uh, to just catch a glimpse of what the, the new Batman costume is like. And if that's you, shame on you. Um, that's, that's weird and disturbing. Um, actually, there's like four people in this room that, Ryan, you're one of them. We were texting, dude, did you see the new Batman costume? from like paparazzi photos. It's pretty cool. I'm excited. You'll enjoy it. You'll enjoy it. Um, okay. So here's the thing. If, if, you're, if, if something amazing happens, if you're, if you're witness to something amazing and you don't have the impulse to share it, then there are really two possibilities. There might be others, but two primary ones. One, either you don't really think the thing is valuable enough to share, so upon reassessment, like, ah, maybe it wasn't that exciting. Maybe it wasn't that important. Maybe it wasn't that valuable. That's one possibility. Or number two, maybe you don't consider people worthy of hearing it. Like, oh, no, it actually is that amazing, but I'm not sure they need, I'm not sure they need it. I'm not sure I care enough to, to tell them specifically. Um... And so here's a true confession for you. Um, I am not a natural evangelist at all. Uh, if you know me well, you'll know that's the case. Like, I, I love Jesus, and I love talking about Jesus, but I am, not, I am not one who just naturally jumps at the opportunity to, 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 to witness to people, to witness to people that don't know him. Um, and sometimes, if, if I'm being honest, it scares me to consider like where that disconnect is happening. And even just thinking through this for this morning, like, is it because I, on some level, I don't actually trust that the good news is good enough and worthwhile? Or is it because I just don't care about the people that I interact with? Some friends, family that, that don't know. Do I just not care about them enough to make myself uncomfortable? Um, I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. Um, but I know there's grace for that, too. Um, so you can pray for me in that. But for John, um, he can do no more and no less than share what he's seen and reflected on over the past six decades. And, and the rest of the letter, so this is just the little prologue here, the rest of the letter is going to be the outflow 
uh, of this, of this conviction that he can't remain silent, that he's not going to just let his brothers and sisters in Christ remain discouraged or remain distant or remain in the darkness or away from the truth or whatever else. He's going to step in because he believes Jesus is good enough and he believes these people are worth it. Both. Okay. Last section. Finish out rest of verse 3 and 4. He says, so that... So here's the purpose statement. So with the main verb, he's going to proclaim. Here's the purpose. So that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. And so the reason he's proclaiming what he's seen is so that you may have fellowship with us. Like he desperately wants fellowship, deep fellowship and relationship with his readers. And fellowship, uh, it's this Greek word koinonia. It, it, it's throughout the New Testament a ton. Uh, it's kind of become almost a technical term for Christian fellowship, but it kind of has the idea of like association, communion, fellowship. Uh, it involves mutual interest in sharing with one another and bearing one another's burdens. That, that's kind of the idea. And John's pointing out there's two planes of fellowship. One is the horizontal, the horizontal, and the other is the vertical. And so he seems to be saying to have the truest, deepest form of of person-to-person, brother-and-sister sort of relationship, to have the deepest, truest form of that, you have to share the truest and deepest form of vertical community, which is intimate relationship with God with the Father, with His Son, and we are certain by implication with the Holy Spirit as well. Like, there's no way to get to the deepest kind of human relationship if you don't share the most fundamental thing about living life in this world, which is an intimate relationship with the Creator and knowledge that the Son of God has bought you full access into that relationship. And and, and for lots of reasons, but, but one really pragmatic one is, look, if, if this is not true, if this, is not, if this Jesus stuff is not true, this was a, this was a myth that was made up, whatever, um, we're, all, we're all gullible. If this stuff is not true, um, then when life ends, you blip into nothingness, right? Some people hope for that. People find peace in that idea. But uh, if this is not true, if, if materialism is the true story, when we die, we're done. Material that makes up our bodies, you know, disintegrated back out into the universe, whatever else. Um, but it, it's, it's a really depressing thought that uh, every, every ounce of energy you've put into relationship, it's wasted energy. Like you can't take those relationships with you. The time that you've spent cultivating relationship and intimacy and love and trust with people, it's just, just gone and you'll be none the wiser. But if it's true that there is a creator God and that he does promise us salvation, and not just salvation, but, but, but life after death, a resurrection, and in a, a good and perfect eternity future with him in relationship and with one another in community, 
then any time that you spend cultivating relationship now is not a waste of time. You're laying track for a relationship that's going to continue on into the future. And, and for people you don't have that chance with in this life, that's okay too, because they're going to have a lot of time to form those relationships. But you see, a, a relationship with God, if the things he says are true, are in fact true, then everything is granted meaning and significance into eternity. Human relationship, almost as much as anything else. So he desires that they would, they would come to, to, to believe the things that they're proclaiming so that they would join in the fellowship with them and, and, and most fundamentally because that fellowship is with the Father and with the Son. And so this, I love this quote. This is a commentator I read um, named Gary Burge. Um, he says, this is the crux of John's thought and the purpose of his writing. Christian community is not some passing association of people who share common sympathies for a cause, nor is it an academy where an intellectual consensus about God is discovered. It cannot be so superficial. Christian community is partnership and experience. It's the common living of people who have a shared experience of Jesus Christ. They talk about this experience. They urge each other to grow more deeply in it. They discover that through it, they begin to build a life together unlike any shared life in the world. It's beautiful. And so this last sentence, we see that John and his peers were, were expecting some measure of joy that they wanted to invite. They were experiencing a measure of joy they wanted to invite these people into, which would in turn deepen and complete their own joy in the process. And this, I think this, just, this text just asks us to consider, like, if you don't deeply believe in Jesus and his claims and deeply love your neighbor, your joy would never be dependent on something like this. This text forces me to ask, is this the case for me? Is my joy actually practically, pragmatically completed by the thought of new people coming into fellowship with us here at Door of Hope Northeast, and more importantly, with fellowship with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, the God of the universe? Does that have any impact on my actual day-to-day -day experiencing of joy? I don't know. I don't know, but I pray that it would. We'll leave that there for now. So to conclude, man, what's amazing here is that John's burden for these people, his burden for these people to taste fellowship with them and with God isn't only for them. It's not only for his original hearers as this letter circulated 2009 or 90 AD, 2090, what's that going to be like? Um, it'll be for them too, but my point is that it's for us. It's for us here today. Like the writing and preservation of these words, God's providence, uh, means that now here with us as a community on the other side of the world 2,000 years later, it's a testament to the fact that we too are invited into the same relationship, that, that what John proclaims, that this fellowship is accessible to you and to me, to anyone, and that Jesus is the entry point into that. The cross is the entry point into that. And so for, for you, if you're in this room, you've been following Jesus for some amount of time, um, I think this is just a reminder, like, 
of what you have been invited into, not only relationally with your peers, with your brothers and sisters, but with the God of the universe, the one from the beginning. I'm going to have fellowship with him. Deep fellowship, secure fellowship, a fellowship that can't be broken because every possible failure on your part has already been accounted for and dealt with on the cross. So I think the call in response to this verse for this morning is just to remember that reality. Try to snap yourself, slap yourself in the face if you need to, slap yourself out of the, of the sort of generic rote response to that and, and worship in response. Recognize what you've been given and celebrate it this morning. And if that's not you, if you're like, oh, this is weird, I don't know, my friend invited me, it's kind of boring, <laughs> whatever, like just here, like you can, you can take, you can accept John's words or you can reject them, you can say he didn't know what he's talking about or whatever, um, but the claim he's making is that that fellowship is for you too, that Jesus' death was for you too. And the only thing you need to do to be invited into this fellowship and experience the most important relationship in all of history, relationship with God, and the full depth of relationship with your peers is to trust Jesus. Is to say, yes, Jesus, I, I believe. And to turn from whatever it is that's given your life meaning, significance, value, and to turn to him. And he invites you right in. And he has wonderful things in store. Um, so I'd ask you to consider that today.